0: Welcome to the Melungeon Voices Podcast, presented by the Melungeon Heritage Association. My name is Liz Malone. I'm the podcast producer. And for all of those who are returning to the Melungeon Voices Podcast for season three, I am here with your president, Heather Andelina. Heather! how are you? I'm fine, Liz. How are you? you sur- Look at us. We're surviving another season. I know, right? <laughs> it's crazy. I can't believe it. We are gluttons for punishment, as they say. <laughs> no, it's good. We are having an amazing time producing this podcast, doing all of these incredible interviews. But here we are, season three. I know there was a lot of anticipation for there being a season three. And thank you so much to the executive board for making this happen. Yes,
1: Liz. I have been receiving all kinds of emails and messages wondering
0: when Season 3 was going to drop. Well, we made it. We are here. So let's get on with it, as they say. So we always start off our seasons with the presidential address. That sounds so formal. Mm -hmm. So, Heather, I'm going to give you the microphone and you take it from here.
1: Thank you, Liz. Welcome back, everyone. To the Melungeon Voices podcast. Liz and I are so excited to be sharing with all of you another amazing season of our podcast. Season three brings with it this year not only all new guests and more compelling content, but a special bonus episode, which was recorded at this year's Melungeon Heritage Association's in person union conference this past June. Once again, we'd like to thank the Melungeon Heritage Association and its executive board and our members for their continued support in helping to make this podcast series possible. Membership dues and donations from our generous supporters directly fund this podcast. So if you're not currently a member and would like to join... We would love to have you participate in furthering our organization's mission. Or if you'd like to make a donation to the MHA, we would greatly appreciate your generosity. Please visit us on the web at www.melungin.org to learn
0: more. We are getting so fancy with the bonus episodes and everything.
1: I know. Check us out. That's why I'm super excited to be sharing the season with everyone.
0: (laughs) Bonus, people. (laughs) Yes. Wow. (laughs) Before we get to the bonus content of this season, let's talk about episode one. Here we are. And what do we have in store for this week? Yes. So we talked to Ramona Moore, Big Eagle, in our
1: debut episode.
0: And let's learn about Ramona.
1: Ramona Moore Big Eagle is an award winning and internationally renowned motivational speaker, storyteller, cultural educator, consultant, and workshop facilitator. She is president and CEO of Dare to Soar Enterprises, an organization she formed in 1991 to empower people of all ages and across all walks of life to become more effective communicators. In this season's debut episode, I spoke to Ramona about her Afro-Indigenous ancestry, the significance of storytelling in Native communities, and the importance and traditions of storytelling.
0: Well, let's get this episode rolling, shall we? Yes, we shall. (laughs) Okay, everyone, (laughs) let's listen in on this interview. Hi, Ramona. How are you today?
2: I'm doing great, Heather. I hope you are.
1: I sure am. I'm going to get right into it. I always start with this story. I always like our guests to tell us about their personal ancestry.
2: Well, my ancestry is very confluted or mixed or however you want to say it. My father's from the Cherokee Nation. My mom is from the Tuscarora Nation historically two nations that were always at war with each other. But I always tell people somehow love prevailed and my mom and dad found a way to get together. (laughs) So um, on my dad's side, his mom and all the Cherokee women um, typically married Scotch-Irish. And on my mother's side, the Tuscarora side, they typically um, married European and African American. So, my mother's mother was half white and half native. Well, my father's father was Penobscot, he was native, and his mother was native and Irish, Scotch Irish. So, that's why I say it's you know, kind of concluded and
1: I'm an enrolled
2: member of the Tuscarora Nation.
1: So the Tuscarora are one of the indigenous nations that are connected to the Melungeon people as well as the Cherokee. So when Mm -hmm. did you first learn about the Melungeon people and do you have any personal connection ancestry-wise to the Melungeon people?
2: To answer the first question, when did I first hear or know about Melungeon? I did undergrad and graduate, for that matter, study in Tennessee. I went to Carson Newman College undergrad and went to East Tennessee State for a graduate school, both of which are located in eastern Tennessee. <laughs> and I'll never forget the day. I think it was about my freshman year of college at Carson Newman College mm-hmm. in Jefferson City, Tennessee that someone asked me if I was Melungeon. Now, I've been asked a lot of things. Are you black? Are you Indian? Are you half black and half Indian? Are you half white and Indian? I've been asked a lot of different questions, but that one had never been asked. No one had ever asked me if I was Melungeon. And so my first response was, what do you mean when you say Melungeon? I don't even know what Melungeon is. And so they said, you know, people that are part native and part white and part black. I said, well, not that I know of, but I guess I could be, I would probably qualify. <laughs> so that was my first time ever hearing the term Melungeon. And, um, I am truly a scholar, a lifelong learner. I always have been. I live in a house with over 53,000 books in my personal library here in this house. I have every book I've ever had since second grade. So I immediately started looking up everything I could find out about lunges, And the more I read and the more pictures I saw, I thought, wow, these people look like my relatives. These people are kind of made up of what my family makeup is. So I've always thought that there's a possibility, but I have no proof or anything as far as knowing that, you know, we have Melungeon ancestry. I just know that from everything I've read and people I've talked to in Tennessee and Melungeon people that I met in Tennessee, I know that there's a strong possibility I could be. The only thing, you know, what I do know for certain is that I am Tuscarora. I have a father that was Cherokee, a mom that is Tuscarora. She's still alive at 93. And, um, you know, and I know their background. So I'm not really sure.
1: Possibly, Ramona. In last season's podcast, we interviewed a gentleman by the name of Dr. Arwen Smallwood. And he's Tuscarora. And he does. Talk I know about- him. Oh, I was about to ask, do you know Dr. Smollett? Yes, I do. We've met and talked
2: extensively.
1: That is awesome. So, yes, I think, you know, there's certainly a connection between the Melungeon people and the Tuscarora, certainly. So, you just might have Melungeon ancestry.
2: It's quite possible. I wouldn't be shocked if I did. <laughs> Ever since that first time, At Carson Newman College and someone asked me if I was Melungeon, I've always left the door open for knowing that, you know, it's a strong possibility.
1: Let's talk about the art of storytelling. How did you become involved in this practice? That's wonderful. That's easy to answer.
2: (laughs) I grew up with storytellers. And it's amazing to me, you know, the people that did not. You know, when you grow up, you tend to think, that every household behind closed doors is like your household because it's what you know. It's the only thing you know, you know, what you've grown up with. So I thought everyone grew up with someone in their household that told stories all the time. I didn't know any different, really, to be honest with you, until I went off to college. And that's when I found out that, no, I didn't grow up with a storyteller. What? You know, my father, my mother... Uh, My grandparents, everybody told stories. It was just part of my life. In fact, my dad was an entrepreneur. He owned his own business. He was a barber. He owned his barber shop. As we all know, all barbers know everything and tell stories about everything they know. Uh, My dad, being the owner, would close his barber shop. And he would come home to a home-cooked meal for my mom. And the four of us, my brother and I, my mom and dad, we would sit down and have dinner together, freshly prepared hot meal. My mom was a teacher. So she got off like at 3.30 or so. And my dad, you know, came home 5.30, 6 o'clock, and we'd eat dinner together at 6 o'clock, 6.30. And my dad always told the most fantastic, Fantastic stories. You know, to the point that sometimes my brother and I would ask him, just like children ask me today as a storyteller, we'd say, is that real, Daddy? Is that true? Sometimes my dad would say with a big grin on his face and a sparkle in his eye, he'd say, of course it's true. I just made it up a few minutes ago. <laughs> but most often he would say, You know, in every story, there is a bit of truth. You have to decide what's true for you. And that's pretty much how I answer that question also, because children ask me every program I ever do. Is that true? Does that really happen? You know, so um, I grew up with storytellers. I loved it. I just thought it was a way of life. And I can remember all the stories my dad would tell me. And what's amazing to me, my brother, who's two years younger than me, grew up with the same mom and dad in the same household, just two years apart. He doesn't remember any of those stories. And I go, I know you know that one. He used to tell that one pretty much every week. didn't remember it. I go, where were you? <laughs> Okay, so that's how I got into storytelling because my dad, you know, was a storyteller. My mom was a storyteller. My dad used storytelling for the sole purpose of entertainment. My mother used storytelling as a technique for teaching, as a teacher. At my dad's homegoing service, I learned so many things about him from people that grew up with him One of the things I learned about him at my dad's homegoing service was his friends told me that when my dad was a little boy, he was raised by his aunt because his mother died um, very soon after he was born. So her sister, his aunt, Henrietta McCown, raised him as her own child it was really her deceased sister who was the mom of him. So that's who raised him. And she was a a school teacher also. But um, his friends told me that when my dad was a little boy, that Nanny, that's what we called his aunt, my aunt, great aunt, would take him to the movies. And then he would come home from the movies. He would set up chairs on the front porch and charge everyone five cents to tell them the story of the movie and they all every one of them told me that when well, my dad told them the story of the movie told them what he saw at the movie it was like they were right there in the movie they said from what he said they could see everything that was happening on the movie because he was such a good storyteller. They felt like they were there at the movie theater looking at the movie with my dad. Isn't that amazing?
1: Yes it is.
2: That that was one of the stories about him that just oh my goodness, that put a smile on my face still to this day. I smile when I think about him lining up chairs on the front porch and charging everyone five cents to tell them about the movie. <laughs> I was just going to say, and I definitely inherited that aspect of storytelling from him. The, you know, Not just be a storyteller, but to go into business as a storyteller. I've built my life around storytelling. I have a business called Dare to Soar Enterprises. And that business is to teach people how to communicate even more effectively through the power of storytelling. So I've built my life, my business around storytelling. And it all started with a dad who told stories for five cents a kid of the movies he went to.
1: <laughs> that, that is amazing. But you mentioned your father told Stories more as entertainment, and your mother told stories more for educational purposes. And I know you are also an American Indian cultural educator. What is the significance of storytelling within Native communities?
2: Oh, I'm glad you asked that. Storytelling is key to our culture, our history, our traditions, our way of life, then now, and always will be, even in the future. In the American Indian culture, first off, there are many different tribes, many nations, all with their own language, their own traditions, their own individual culture as a tribe, as a nation, and their own particular stories, their creation stories, their they're warrior stories. They're hero stories, as, as Campbell would say. So before there was written language communication, written communication, there's always been oral tradition, verbal language. And as a result, you know, as an artist, as a storyteller, I'm considered an artist, You know, each art form loves to say, we were the first, you know, painters and drawers. You know, they go, oh, yes, before anything was ever done, there was always the picture. And, you know, dancers love to say, oh, it started with us, the dancers. We would dance the the events of the day out. But with all humility and humbleness, I say you're all wrong. (laughs) It all started with the story. Storytellers were the first artists. Storytellers were the first historians. Storytellers began it all. Everything else came from the storytellers and their stories. So before there was written uh, language, there was the story and those that shared those stories. Every day was a sharing of the hunt that day or the harvesting that day or the, you know, about the everyday life, the, the hunting, the harvesting of the food, the gathering, the, um, the chores, the children. It all started with those, those events and a story about those events for the day. So storytelling has always been a key component of indigenous culture, always will be. And as a storyteller, I love the responsibility I have of keeping our culture, our traditions alive through the stories.
1: That is wonderful. You know, I was just in Jonesboro, Tennessee. Yay! Yes. One of my favorite places. Yes. I was going to ask you if you've been there, but I would imagine you, you should have, uh, it being the storytelling capital of the world.
2: Yes. In fact, when I was in at Parson Newman, attended Parson Newman as a student, I'll never forget. It was either September or October somewhere. It was in the fall. A bunch of us students heard that there was some lady telling ghost stories in a graveyard. We all packed Ourselves into a car. When I say packed, I mean, we were sitting on each other's lap. And I mean, because everyone that wanted to go piled into one car. So <laughs> that car was packed. And we all drove to Jonesboro to hear this lady tell ghost stories in the graveyard. Now, we had no idea that history was being made, but that storyteller was none other than Jackie Torrance. And she was telling ghost stories. And oh my goodness, we all had goose bumps, our hair standing up. on our, We were looking around in the dark and shadows. And oh, it was just the perfect place for storytelling. And I was totally hooked on that um, whole event to think that maybe, just maybe, I might could do the same thing and have the same effect on people as Jackie Torrance did that night in the graveyard telling ghost stories.
1: That is so cool. (laughs) I love ghost stories.
2: (laughs) I do too.
1: Ramona, would you like to tell us about one of your personal favorite stories?
2: I will tell you this It's hard to say what's my favorite. I have three children that's just like asking me, well, which child is your favorite? Well, I love all of them. You know, they're equally different. So I have a different expression of love for each one based on their love language. But, you know, I love them all. And that's how it is with stories. I love all of them. So it's usually kind of hard to pick a favorite. But I do have some that are that I've been known to tell more often than others. One in particular, the one I did for my TED Talk. Back in 2019, the story. This um, I would have to say that's my signature story. That's one of my favorite stories. So I'll share that one with you if you'd like. Sure thing. Once there was a wise old woman named Zoe, and Zoe. First off, yeah, do She was a retired librarian. But she was not living a life of sitting back in a rocking chair, reading a whole book or, you know, that type life. Instead, she loved to get outside in nature. Nature just seemed to bring her alive. So every day, she would usually get her knapsack, pack some food in her knapsack with always putting extra in that knapsack because you never know who you might meet that was hungry, be it an animal or a person. So she always had extra food in that knapsack and she would go into the forest just to enjoy nature. In fact, when she'd go in, she'd notice everything like she noticed overhead how the canopy of trees would be like a, like a arbor. And shafts of light would come down through that canopy of trees, putting little dapples of light here and there as she would walk in. She noticed how the the ground, the grass felt so soft like carpet. In fact, she would often take her shoes off just to feel that mossy green grass underneath her feet as she'd walk in. She always smelled the aroma of the forest as she was going into the forest and going in deeper and deeper, the woodsy scents, the musky scents, the the scents of the evergreen, and all the smells that were there waiting for her as she walked into the forest. And always she heard the sound of the babbling brook with the water rushing over those stones, rounding them out for years and years and years, rushing on to other parts of the forest, always babbling and giving her the water music as she walked in. And whenever she got thirsty, she would just go over to that babbling brook, She'd cup her hands together, slide them into that cool, crisp, clear water, bring that water to her mouth, and oh, she could feel that water as it went all the way down through her body, reviving her, restoring her. Oh, this is what she loved best about nature. Now, one day, As she was sitting beside that babbling brook, just enjoying the sounds of the forest, the smells, the sights, she noticed something sparkling in the water. She put her hand in and pulled out a large, valuable stone. She had never seen a stone like this before, but she could tell by the sparkle and brilliance of that stone that this It'd be something special. This might be something valuable. Well, she took that huge stone and tossed it into her knapsack, just like it might have been any other old river rock, and continued enjoying herself there in the forest. And not too long afterwards, she saw a young man walking through the woods. She called out to him and waved and beckoned him to come over near the brook? Maybe he might be thirsty. She could tell by one look at this young man that he was not just in the forest enjoying nature as she was. She could tell by the look of his clothes that were torn and dirty and tattered looking. Things had probably been a little rough for him. She could tell by the thin frame of his body that he had probably missed a few ma- meals and she could tell by the wrinkles on his brow that he was probably worried about something, maybe even a hint of fear. Well, she bent over to the young man and said, "'Come, sit beside me, share a meal with me.'" She opened up her knapsack to take out some food for the young man. And when she did, she could tell that he saw that stone because his eyes grew wide with amazement. You know, it's not every day you meet someone in the forest that has a stone that large and, to his knowledge, that valuable. So, from the look on his face, she took the stone out, held it in front of the young man, and said, Would you like to have this stone? The young man couldn't believe his ears. He said, What what, what did you say? She said, Would you like to have the stone? He thought, this has got to be a joke, or maybe a setup. I don't know what's going on, he thought, but he he said, well, yes, of course I (laughs) would. Who wouldn't want that stone? She said, here. And without any hesitation whatsoever, she gave the stone to the young man. The young man took the stone from her hands. He looked at the stone, he looked at her, and tears came to his eyes. He started hugging her. He said, ma'am, thank you. Thank you. You have no idea what this, this could mean to me and my family. Times have been rough for us, and I don't even know how we're going to make it, but I think this stone might be the answer. And with that, after hugging her, he, he walked out the forest with that stone thinking, I am going to be rich. He was overjoyed at what had happened with the thoughts that the stone is probably so valuable it'll take care of every need I had, every bill, every debt. Why, this stone, it's got to be so valuable they'll take care of my children's children's needs and debt. So that young man went home knowing His future was set because of that stone. But you know something? The next day, he was right back in that forest looking for Zoe. When he found her, the same joy that he had left with was the joy that he had when he saw her. And he said, I've been looking all over for you. You know that stone you gave me yesterday? I took it to an appraiser. It is worth millions. He started talking about one of the largest, whatever he named that stone. He said it was so valuable. It was worth millions. And I realized, just as I thought, my future is set. Everything I could possibly ever need or want is going to be met because of that stone. But then I got to thinking about you. I got to thinking about how you gave me the stone so easily, so freely, without any hesitation. And even though he offered me a lot of money, I said, no. And here I am now to give the stone back to you. At that point, Zoe looked surprised. She said, that you came to give the stone back? Even though the appraiser had said that it would be enough to take care of all of your needs? He said, yes. You see, yesterday, you made me a very rich man with that stone. But I want something that's even more valuable than the stone that you gave. I want what you have inside of you that caused you To give the stone away. And with that, he gave her the stone. And like before, Zoe tossed that stone that she now knew was worth millions. She tossed that stone in her knapsack just like it was a regular old river rock. And she sat down with that young man. And she began to tell him. Story after story after story. Stories of her life, her experiences, imparting her wisdom, her knowledge, those experiences. Story after story after story. And finally, when she stopped, she looked at that young man and said, That's me. That's my life. That's who I am. The stories. Hold who I am in words, and now I've shared them with you. And the young man hugged her as he had the day before and thanked her with tears in his eyes. And he said, You know, yesterday you made me a rich man, but I'm giving you the stone back. I've given you the stone back. And now, because of your stories, because of your wisdom, your knowledge, your experience given to me by your stories. I am richer right now than I was when I had the stone. And he went away a very rich man.
1: That was so beautiful, Ramona. Not the power of storytelling.
2: Thank you.
1: (laughs) I love it. How can our listeners learn more about your work And how can they get in touch with you?
2: Oh, I like that question too. (laughs) That's really easy. I am for hire. In fact, I go all over the world doing storytelling. I go just as easily to Raleigh as I do to Wisconsin, Alaska, the Bahamas, Jamaica, Africa, doing storytelling. So someone can easily get in touch with me by website. My website's my name, RamonaMooreBigEagle.com. Or they can email me, Big Eagle, and that's B-I-G-E-A-G-L-E, Big Eagle for you, the number for the letter U, at gmail.com. And if you don't mind, I don't mind giving out my phone number. In fact, that's really the way I prefer for people to get in touch with me. Emails I might not see. I usually forget about my website to go check it. But a telephone call, I'll answer the phone every time. <laughs> okay, So sure my thing. phone number is 704-779-8632. Again, that's Ramona Moore, Big Eagle at 704-779-8632. And of course, anyone can always come to Charlotte, come and sit in my 35,000 plus library and have a cup of tea. I love
1: doing tea parties.
2: Have a cup of tea and I'll share a story with them too.
1: (laughs) I've got to do that. I'm here in Charlotte, so I've got to definitely come and do that. (laughs) Oh, great. That's wonderful. I love it. Yes. So we got to get together, Ramona.
2: (laughs) Yes, we do.
1: Most definitely. Well, Ramona, I just want to thank you so much for being on our podcast. It was such a joy listening to you and and you telling one of your favorite stories.
2: Thank you very much, Heather, for having me on your podcast. I appreciate you and the work that you do with the Melungeon Heritage Society. Thank you so
0: much. You've been listening to the Melungeon Voices podcast. On behalf of myself, Heather and Alina, and the entire MHA Executive Committee, we'd like to thank all of those who participated in making this episode possible. For more information, you can visit them on the web at Melungeon.org. That's M-E-L-U-N-G-E-O-N dot O-R-G. The information, views, and opinions expressed in this podcast episode do not necessarily represent those of the MHA. Melendian Voices is presented by the Melendian Heritage Association. All rights are reserved.